Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Amal and George Clooney. Mark Anthony and Cleopatra. Kermit and Miss Piggy. All power couples of equal significance. Dynamic spouses have existed all throughout history, but I'd be willing to bet that you've never heard of one of the most influential power couples of the founding era. Today, we'll talk about Katie and Nathaniel Green with Karen Bloom. This is Too Complicated for History. Karen Bloom. Karen is a public historian with undergraduate and graduate degrees in historic sites archaeology, particularly sites of the American Revolution. Thanks for being here with us today, Karen. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. So Karen, I I heard a little birdie told me that one of your particular (laughs) interests is a woman named Katie Green. Yes, absolutely. Um, In my weirder moments, I think that I am she reincarnated. (laughs) Um, But she's just a fascinating personality. And I uh, found out about her when I came here to Charleston, South Carolina, and I've been fascinated ever since. I was talking to someone who's just a, you know, casual like history fan, like they read history books every once in a while. And they had no idea who Nathaniel Green, Katie Green, the Greens. I I, I told Lynn at one point that there we should make a list of like the guys who died that like no don't get any kind of credit i feel like hamilton's yep. the only one that died young and still history kinda... forgot except yeah. hamilton because it's musical right <laughs> right right that's right. actually my particular least favorite line in the entire situation and i love that musical so much but that line about um every other founding father gets to grow old every other founding father's story gets told like nope wrong Mm-mm. nope Mm-mm. let me let me name a couple for you <laughs> yeah and green in particular is kind of shocking given how important he was he was. I mean, Washington's at some point even said if, if something should happen to me, it was after a failed assassination attempt. And he said, something should ever happen to me. By God, make Green the commander, put him in charge. <laughs> That's um, what you're some, saying. That, like, yeah. Green is the guy, right? He's the dude. He's Washington's right hand man. Sorry, right. but he is. And not Hamilton. Not yes. Hamilton. Green the musical. <laughs> I think it's because that he, at least the way what we tell the story of the war is that, you know, Boston happens and then it's Valley Forge and then Yorktown. And like, those are the three events. And in between the first two, there's like two years. So some major events like losing New York City and stuff like that. But between the second two, there's many years of war between Valley Forge and Yorktown. But most of it, Washington's just staring at like running around Philadelphia and staring at New York. 
and <laughs> green is doing most of the work mm-hmm. uh, in the you know down south in the southern. I mean, campaign. at the end of the war, they hadn't seen each other for something like three years. So green is conducting this war for Washington in the south, and it's all by letter and message carrier and you know word of mouth. So the guy that does this real sort of slogging day in day out winning of the war this yeoman's work of soldiery um we never get to hear much about him because he died young he died young too i was just gonna say we were talking about that back and forth and how often they would have had letters from each other and that clearly washington had to trust green because Mm -hmm. he can't pick up the phone and say hey what are you doing let me help you like he trusted him to make huge decisions yeah implicitly and i don't know if that's a hundred percent because of Green's own merit or because he knew Washington knew that Green had learned a lot of his um, war strategy and, and theory from Henry Knox, who was also a brilliant military mind. Um, and Knox is the one directing him to which books to read in the library and in the uh, bookstores, which books to pick up. So, I mean, Knox was Washington's other hand, you know, if, <laughs> if Green is the right hand, Knox is the left. And, uh, so I don't know. I don't know why Washington trusted him that much, but it was well, well-placed trust. Oh, so it's funny that Washington trusted Green so much, given, especially given the fact that Green was in charge of the defenses of New York, kind of, which went just horrifically wrong. It's almost I mean, if like, you think about it, he lost a lot of battles. He lost almost every battle. Yeah. Right? He's the guy that's famous for saying, we fight, we lose, we rise and fight again. <laughs> I mean, it's all he ever did was lose battles, but... Um, Green said that? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, maybe Washington saw a lot of himself in there, you know? <laughs> it's a fair amount of losing. Yeah, yeah French and Indian War. I mean, think yeah, about okay. it. He saw himself in Green. As long as you step up when it matters. I mean, I think that's what's most important. Well, sure. And I mean, a lot of those British victories were Pyrrhic victories anyways. The British won, but it's such a cost that in the end, you know, it's like the quintessential, well, we lost the battle, but we won the war. He just did that over and over and over again. Yeah. And exactly. That has to be taxing in its own right. (laughs) Knowing that you're really not set up to win. You're just trying to make this as difficult as possible for the people on the other side. Right. Brutal. Um, But because we wanted to talk about Katie, but not Nathaniel, but <laughs> right. just in general, um, I think the Greens, plural, are underappreciated as historical figures. Absolutely. It's probably because, you know, yeah, like you said, he died young. Because um, yeah, Katie agree. was, a, you know, a character and, a, you know, a force in her own right. Uh, that's what I understand. She was, by all accounts, young and beautiful and vivacious. That was coupled with a decent education for, you know, a Quaker from Block Island. She really hadn't seen much outside of her own little Rhode Island world until she was married at 18 or 19 to a 31-year-old man. Um, By all accounts, it was a completely mutual affection. It really wasn't an arranged anything. Um, And she could hold her own in a room of polite company and and higher than polite company if you if you will if you want to talk about the socioeconomic status of folks of the day right she's rubbing elbows with the most wealthy the most important the most influential and um it it would seem that she could certainly run in those circles perfectly well handle herself perfectly well oh i didn't even realize she was from rhode island 
Um, mm-hmm. She was born on Block Island, so this random little island out in, you know, the harbor and had to take a boat, a rowboat to get into the city. Oh, my God. That's funny. (laughs) Um, I didn't know Rhode Island had this reputation back then of being sort of like an unwieldy place because it's, you know, today it's sort of like, oh, it's the littlest state is kind of how everyone knows it. But it was kind of, didn't the British consider it like relatively like ungovernable? Like they were sort of like they just did their own and like they didn't sign the constitution like it was like a whole like they have the, a very weird personality like sort of like a napoleon complex yeah i think that's <laughs> probably an appropriate description of course rhode islanders are um some of the the folks who are the most largely responsible for the the atlantic slave trade the triangle trade in terms of shipbuilding and, and importing of actual human cargo which people forget a lot and it's interesting because there's a big population of Quakers there. So how do those two ideologies mix and mingle and maybe not mix or mingle? Um, and just, uh, yeah, it's a complex place for being so small. <laughs> <laughs> um, Lynn, Washington knew, was friends with, I mean, obviously he was close with Daniel Green, but like he liked Katie Green as well, right? Like they were acquaintances that were so and karen can back me up on this but i will say i just learned something about katie green that i did not know and i bet you don't know it isaac their first two children are named george washington green and martha washington green yeah really they waited until their fourth (laughs) child their second son to name a nathaniel jr nat nat was their fourth kid george (laughs) washington was uh, the namesake before Nathaniel was. And it was early on, wasn't it? It was mm-hmm. like 70. When did, when the first child was born, um, I feel like it was. It was early. It was it 77 was, or right. six. So something. I don't know. I'll find out. Before the um, war. Well, they were. I mean, the Washingtons really took the Greens under their wing as sort of surrogate children, truly, because Katie was an orphan. She was raised by her aunt and uncle. And Nathaniel was um, read out of Quaker meeting. So he watched a military parade in Rhode Island. And that was enough for the Quaker community to say, you know what? That doesn't hold to our ideals of Quaker pacifism. You're out. Really? Wow, that's harsh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> because they're gossips and they're harsh. They blamed Katie because she didn't have a particularly religious upbringing because her aunt was the eccentric aunt that like, was in love with Ben Franklin and he was in love with her. And that's a whole other, I'll come back to tell you that oh, story. Yeah, that's a whole other episode. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Katie's raised by this like eccentric aunt who cares more about her academic education than about her sewing and needlework. And so when Nathaniel gets read out of meeting and like excommunicated from the Quaker community, everybody pointed the finger at her. And it was the very first of a ton of scandals that they just pinned right on her. Oh, with no <laughs> cause. Wow. <laughs> Lynn, when you said that they named, or when you started talking about what they named their kids, and they mm-hmm, said George, yeah. I thought you were going to say that they were like George Foreman and named all of their oh. kids George. <laughs> <laughs> George one, George two, George three. Georgina, George. Yeah, Georgina, George Georgina. All of George Foreman's children, children, boys and girls are all named George. I had no idea. <laughs> That's yeah. interesting. After George Washington, of course. Of yeah. course. Of course. I mean, yeah. of course. Yeah. That yeah. really is how they um isn't how every high esteem they held them in. <laughs> that's that's pretty Literally, incredible. He came before, you know, Nathaniel Jr. That's right. wild. That that's yeah. I did not realize that. So when I learned that I was I was rather taken aback. 
So they were close. They, they yeah. were a little close. And another Super. thing I've learned about them through my work on Martha Washington, and you can verify whether this is accurate, that Martha, well, Martha didn't like to dance. That I know. But apparently, Katie Green loved to dance, and George loved to dance with her. Yep. And apparently, she was a very beautiful dancer. Yeah, there's, um, there was talk, there was, and I don't know the specific reference, but somebody wrote a letter talking about uh, the general, His Excellency General Washington and Mrs. Green dancing at Valley Forge for three hours without sitting down. And when I interpret that just to make it a fun little story. You know, I mentioned to folks that His Excellency, His Excellency the General is a lovely dancer and that we danced for three hours straight. And if you should ask the general about that, and he tells you that I'm the one who sat down first, I should tell you that he is either very forgetful or quite a liar. Um, <laughs> I, I most certainly was not the one to sit for refreshment first. But that's true. Martha, you know, just sort of looked on as a lovely matron figure. And Nathaniel didn't like to dance either. He would always dance the first dance with her because that's what was polite. Mm -hmm. Um, But he had a limp from a childhood injury. Oh. It caused him to not be elected a captain in his local militia, the Kentish Guards. They said his unit said that it would be an embarrassment to have a captain with a limp. And they chose not to elect him for a promotion. And he's the only person in the history of the United States Army still to this day that went from the rank of private, he was a private in the Kentish Guards in the militia, to the rank of general without running up the ranks in between. And it was because of that damn limp. And well, I, I hope the head of the militia who rejected him was still alive when he became the general. Right? The well, general yeah, it was only a couple of years later. It was only a couple of years later, but because of that limp, he was really self-conscious for truly the rest of his life. And, and one of the things that prevented him from doing was dancing in his estimation. So he was huh. perfectly happy, from what I understand, to just hand her right off to the general and well, um, I'll, watch I'll, them just dance. To, to clarify for the... <laughs> for the presentist people in the audience dancing <laughs> like isn't ex- they weren't like bumping and grinding like that's not what was <laughs> right, right, right. yeah like it, it's not for it's anyone fancy pi- walking yeah for anyone picturing something a little <laughs> bit more risque yeah. <laughs> like pulling an acon down in the bahamas or something like that <laughs> he, was, he was it's it's like yeah it's choreographed right it's mm-hmm. a, it's kind of like square dancing i feel like there's there's some parts of that's what it reminds me of when I've done the 18th century dancing. It's you have for, for anyone in your audience who might be history nerdy, <laughs> there's a modern equivalent called contra dancing. It's it's basically the modern equivalent of the English country dance that was popular in the 18th century, but it's all choreographed. It's it's fancy walking. You have to walk in a particular pattern. Contra <laughs> with other people. Fun. Yeah. What kind of music does it go? Is is it with the classical music or? I, I mean, I think it's pretty much the same as some of the old dances. Um, it's, so it's they're lively. not trying to bring it's in like 80s and 90s music. That they're mm-hmm. not like doing that to Lady Gaga. Okay. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. No, it's too, it's too <laughs> traditional tunes. Yeah. It's really pretty unchanged Just. except for the name from what I understand. I mean, I don't know. I, I do more English country dancing than contra dancing. Weird. <laughs> That sounds like something that the like the, the people who run run the town in Footloose would have been cool right? with. They're yeah. like, you can't dance, <laughs> exactly. you can contradance. Here are the approved steps. Yes, this is wholesome. Um, you can keep your yeah. three foot distance. <laughs> 
there's a um this is a, a very weird reference and I'll, I'll keep the story short but um uh Baz Luhrmann's first movie he's the guy who did uh Les Mis and he actually uh, and a bunch of other really good movies um is a movie called Strictly Ballroom where it's ballroom very very formal ballroom dancing and then there's this one guy who just wants to dance his own steps <laughs> And that's the only, I, every time we talk about 18th century dancing, that's that movie, that picture is my, I, I love it. I I've heard of it, but I've really not seen movie. it. I'm going to have to go find it. It's yeah. really great. It's set in Australia. There's a reason it did the accent, but <laughs> it's very good. So they dance a lot and it would be when, during the war, did Katie go, cause that was in Valley Forge, you said. So like she was visiting the encampments during winter, winter quarters, not really just during winter, but like in the off season. Yeah. I mean, so apparently it was her favorite thing. Um, she got lonely. She was a social creature at heart. She got lonely. She got bored. Um, she loved a good excuse for a shopping spree, which every single trip to a winter encampment always was. <laughs> uh, the poor woman was always in a different stage of pregnancy. So I oh. feel like she can get away with it, justifying a new shopping spree, a new wardrobe. Cause it's like, well, I'm like only a little bit pregnant right now, or, Oh, I'm really pregnant. Uh, she gave birth at the <laughs> barracks at Morristown the winter after Valley Forge like she entrusted her child birthing to the army surgeons at wow. Morristown. Uh, that, that winter was tough yeah. too. So she was a tough lady. She Nathaniel all the time tried to tell her don't come to this particular encampment, don't don't show up here now. It's dangerous. Uh, and she would only ever be like temporarily put off, right? I mean, you guys, you know these women. It's like, okay, okay, honey, like I'll, I'll sure, sure, like, sure, I'll sure. See what you but say. Then, <laughs> then you know, you show up anyway, just a couple of weeks later than you <laughs> felt like. So she was very headstrong. And um, I have to imagine he was happy that she showed up. I mean, just reading with you know with George and Martha, how other uh, generals would say he's in such a better mood. Now that Martha's here, I mean, I have to imagine it's like that with Kate. Yeah, absolutely. We have similar letters from guys here in South Carolina saying that, you know, he it's like he aged backwards five or 10 years oh. since she's been here. She he's all smiles again. His complexion is better. He's not as tired. He's not as harried. Uh, he's just she is the light in his life, which is really cool to hear about. And you know, they all, a lot of them burn their letters. I think that happened a lot with the greens too, but the ones that survive are really tender and really uh, a little bit more, I think, I don't know. I mean, wouldn't you find that they're, they're a little bit more, I guess is explicit is the word I want to say, but not in that scandalous <laughs> way. They're direct. They, right. they aren't, um, they don't hide their meaning. They, if they love somebody, if they care about them with deep affection, that's exactly what they say. Right. Um, the language is a little bit different because it's 18th century language, but they don't hedge their bets and hide their feelings. There's no time for that. I mean, and I love that about them. And it's a historian's dream to not have to try to figure out, you know, who they're speaking the implicit about. Meaning or, or right, something. Which yeah. we often have yeah. to do with, you know, George Washington. So it's nice that they're more forthright. So they were obviously really close, but then, you know, he doesn't live very long. I mean, to put it bluntly. <laughs> so how, what were the circumstances surrounding that? Just for those who don't know, you know, around his death and, and yeah, her. So after the war, they were land rich and cash poor because, oh gosh, how do I do this quickly? Let's see. 
Nathaniel was the quartermaster general of the army around the time of Valley Forge before he took command in the South. And during that time, he was spending his own money because Congress couldn't get it together to actually fund an army or a war. (laughs) Some things, I'm telling you, history is just not that different from the present. (laughs) It's just not. (laughs) We think that it's so far away and it's not. The past is not a foreign country. That's one of my least favorite expressions. It is not. Um, And so then he gets command of the Southern Army. He was supposed to go and be commander over the fort at West Point. And that got rerouted immediately because there was such a a terrible situation going on in the South. So he rides to the South. And even though he's not the quartermaster general anymore, even though he is actually in charge of the army now in the South, he finds the same supply problem. So he does the same thing. He pitches in his own fortune to supply the army because they're hanging on by a threat. They're mutinous. They're leaving. They're sick. They're dying. It is bad news bears all over the South. So he puts up his own money to try and supply them. And it's a much worse situation now because he already went nearly destitute several years ago at Valley Forge. So it's just compounding issues. So by the time the war is over, he doesn't have any money. And he owes a lot of creditors, specifically in the city of Charleston, and they are banging down the door. So they can't go back and live in Rhode Island. The house passes to his brother, Um, I don't know what's going on with their businesses there, but he ends up in the South going, all right, I got to make a go at being a rice planter or else I'm never going to pay off these debts. I'm screwed. And what does a Rhode Island Quaker, you know, merchant and blacksmith or, you know, um, iron forger know about rice planting? Right. Absolutely nothing. (laughs) So they make a go of it at Mulberry Plantation, and the circumstances of his death are totally weird. He went and visited a friend of theirs, a a different plantation nearby in Georgia. So their plantation Mulberry Grove is outside of Savannah, Georgia, right next door to Matt Anthony Wayne, who is delighted because Anthony Wayne is perpetually in love with Katie Green. Who wouldn't be? The guy is like not in love with his wife. He's in love with Katie Green. There's like five people in line for Katie. So I don't think there were very many sad people when Nathaniel died at the age of 44. Anthony Wayne was one of them. He said, I have, he sat vigil for uh, Nathaniel Green and said, I have seen a great and good man die. Um, But anyway, so in June, he's visiting, Nathaniel Green is visiting a friend's rice plantation and they go walking out onto the rice fields to see how everything is going at the neighbors. And he remarks on what a hot day it was and he didn't have a hat. Well, on the way home, he develops a headache in the carriage, and the headache never goes away. It only gets worse and worse. She calls a doctor. He does some bloodletting. Super effective. The headache gets worse. She calls a different doctor. He lets even more blood. And by the 19th of June, Nathaniel is dead at the age of 44 of sunstroke, basically. Good heavens. It's like an epically tragic and mundane way for such an important guy to go, isn't it? It's like this man. huge hero, this war hero who yeah. put his own money on the line to to help create this nation. Yeah. And his and life and the lives of so many men. And it's like he was taken out by the sun. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh. oh man. That That's is brutal. heartbreaking. I mean, it just goes to show you, they're like, oh, you have a headache. Let's just drain you of (laughs) your vital fluids. I mean, humeric theory, man, it's it's incredible that that lasted as long as it did. Right. Um, But instead of, you know, 
sucking his blood out, they should have pumped water in. But they didn't. I mean, they didn't. They did their best with what they yeah. knew. I mean, 200 years from now, they'll be like, you did. You guys did what? Right. Well, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, you that's the other thing. What? And not to derail us too much. But, you know, if you look at the way that we treat certain things that we don't understand today, I mean, treatments for cancer, right? Right. It's right. a barrage of poison to kill anything and everything. The invasion, the invading cells and the non-invasive cells. And so 200 years from now, people will probably look at us and go, Whoa, how backwards and barbaric are they? Let's hope so. Yeah, that's a yeah. great. Yeah, yeah. let's hope so. Let's hope it's so much more advanced. Yeah, that's a great comparison, though, because it, it is you know like uh, of of everything. He, sometimes it did work mm-hmm. back then. I mean, but if, sometimes it's by chance. But mm-hmm. you know, there are certain things we do these days that are sort of that very are similar. also by chance, right? Right. Yeah. I, I would like to know if there's any any sources of her reaction to this, and I, I know. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. What happened to her? Like, how was she feeling at the time? So a lot of. From what I understand, there were a lot of rumors about her, and I think this is true of anybody who's popular in any given day and age. People said that she was vapid, that she didn't have any depth. People said that she had no maternal instinct, so why on earth did she keep having babies? Well, of course, she kept having babies. She was infatuated with her husband, and he was with her as well, so of course. Um that she didn't care at all for him because she was so involved in flirting with all these other men and these junior officers. And she was even accused of adultery at one point and of having a child that wasn't Nathaniel's. And all he ever did, I mean, he teased her about it sometimes. There was once or twice that they apparently through their letters, you can see they got into like little spats of trying to make each other jealous (laughs) Um, kind of like Twitter wars. So she says something about a nice, you know, party that she had while he was off on the battlefield, freezing and starving. And she talks about this nice evening that she had with, you know, Jeremiah Wadsworth or whoever. And so he comes back and says, well, I'm here with the lady Sterling and Kitty Sterling is just the most accomplished young lady. And it's really delightful to be in her presence. It's like, wow, you guys are petty. Um, (laughs) Y'all love each other so much, and you're so petty. Uh, they get jealous of each other. But they really did. They were so in love, and for as much time as they spent apart, I mean, they spent eight years of war pretty much apart, um, and it made the times that they were together all that much sweeter, I understand, from the few letters that do survive. Um, the letters from his subordinates that talk about him in her presence and out of it. And then, you know, when she when she's left alone, it's like she's widowed at the age of, I think, 31 Gosh. or maybe 32 with five children and no fortune and incomplete debt. And he hadn't been able to make any payments to any of his debtors in Charleston by the time Ugh. he died. So she's left with a plantation and five kids and a tutor and a bunch of men who are willing to be her legal representation because she can't speak for herself in Congress to try and get his pension. Oh. So, I mean, she like, has to take care of the family. She has to take care of the plantation, but she can't legally do anything right. to really do that. Right. I mean, she was a single parent for eight years, essentially, with, because when she was with him in camp, she almost never brought the kids. Almost never. Sometimes a couple of them would come with her, but almost never brought the kids. So it wasn't until 1783 when they all go back to Rhode Island together that he actually literally meets his entire family. He hasn't even met some of these kids. Wow. You're kidding. And by wow. 86, he's dead. 
Well, <laughs> I mean, golly. so they wouldn't really have much memory of him. The the two older ones, um, the three older ones, Cornelia talks about her mother. There's a lot of writings from Cornelia, who's one of the youngest, about her mother. But it's George and Martha who I understand would have ended up with the most memories of their father because the others are too young. And George died tragically. He fell into a stream um, in Georgia on their plantation and drowned. So he wasn't around for very long. Um, he was, I think, a preteen at the time of his death. Oh, my gosh. I mean, just a life full of hardship and tragedy. And, you know, how do how do historians talk about them? There are some historians that talk about Katie as, well, her husband saw her as fragile and feminine and needing protection and called her my dear angel. And just because he called her my dear angel, he must think that she is fragile. Right. And it's like, these are women historians during the rise of women's history as a discipline that are saying this. And it's like, no, man, she was, she was made of much sterner stuff than that. Um, I think any woman who had children in that time period, they were all strong women. Mm-hmm. I mean, they mm-hmm. didn't have what we have today. No. They raised children. They took care of plantations that, you know, when their husbands yeah. were away. She was a businesswoman. She was a teacher. She was a mother. She was a housekeeper. And they did end up being slave owners, too. Mm -hmm. I mean, this lady who's raised with Quaker ideals, if not the religious proclivity, Quaker ideals, but in Rhode Island, a, a massive trading of human cargo state or colony at the time ends up in Georgia required to have a rice plantation or be completely literally destitute. Mm-hmm. And that's what she chooses for herself. And so she chooses and they choose together. All right, we're going to make a go of this rice planting. And that comes with overseers and that comes with enslaved humans. Um, and how did they even reconcile that? Right. Um, it's, it's incredible to think of. And then after he's gone, she's got a tutor. She's got a, kid who's 10 years younger than her, who's tutoring her children. His name is Phineas Miller. And he's madly in love with her. And just, I mean, of course, it's like, yeah, he's I mean, a man. It, but it's crazy. It's like real housewives has been done before, bro. Like, <laughs> Why is this not a, an HBO miniseries? I is know. what I'd like to know. John Adams, my foot. That right? stuff is great. That's important. But let's get the greens on here. That would be awesome. Yeah, it's like there's something about Katie. Ah, there's honest. something to see. There you go. There's something, there's something about Katie. About Katie. Yeah. I like it. Yeah, I don't know if you could do an 18th century spoof of that movie <laughs> that, and that many people would like. Because <laughs> the, the only people that were going to go see it are history nerds and they'd be like, oh my God. <laughs> So sorry for the interruption, but we're going to take a brief break now for a word from our sponsors. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other 
other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odysseypodcast, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash odysseypodcast now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash odysseypodcast. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I mean, it's crazy. I mean, people spread in lies and rumors. Some uh, Georgia local legislator says, well, I went to Rhode Island and I investigated these rumors that Katie was unfaithful and I have found them to be completely untrue. She is a woman of sound mind and virtue. Yeah, she likes to flirt, but she keeps it within the bounds of everything that is reasonable and proper. Um, He just defended her to the last that she's smart that she's loving. That's where we get that understanding that she was maternal and she was loving. It's because this, you know, guy that she met in Georgia, his name was Briggs, uh, went to the trouble to investigate these rumors because he cared for her reputation for some weird reason. He was one of the few that wasn't in love with her figures. Um. <laughs> <laughs> he obviously cared about her though, perhaps yeah, more as like a sister kind of figure. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, what an incredible person to, I mean, don't we all know at least one person like this? When they walk into a room, you notice. It's not like the room stops. It's none of that romantic Hollywood stuff, but you notice that they're there. Right. They, I, mean, I have a funny story about that particular right? thing. Like they've never met a stranger. They easily make friends. Yep. They're smart. They look like they've got it all together. And you know they mustn't, but boy, they play it off well. And right. People notice when they're there and they notice mm-hmm. when they're not. People noticed when Katie was absent. Right. Hmm. Let that be said of all of us that you notice when you're gone, when you're not there. It's incredible. I mean, you know people like that? Well, I've, I've, there's a very particular moment <laughs> that I have a very vivid memory. So I used to work in theater. I used to be a playwright in another life. And I was working at this theater in the West Village in New York. And um, I was taking tickets that day because one of the house, the, one of the people didn't show up at the door of the theater and jesse eisenberg's play was the one that was on awesome and this was right around the time of spider-man with andrew garfield and stuff when they were both in that and he was playing um or yeah it was right after the social network so that's why they would have known each other so i'm taking tickets and then in walks emma stone 
Oh, and I legitimately so like I've seen her in movies and mm-hmm. stuff like that. But I was like, and no offense, to Emma Stone, but I didn't think she was like the prettiest person in Hollywood or whatever. Yeah. And then I saw her in person and legitimately could not speak. And like everyone in the room, like, like turned to look and see who just walked in. And it was I'd never been in the presence of someone like that. But there are certain people who just have like an aura mm-hmm. about them that is like sort of magnetic. And the funniest part was after I took the tickets, I, um, Andrew Garfield walked in after her and he looks at me, he goes, he gives me a ticket and he goes, I know. And he walks right in after. <laughs> <laughs> that was when they were dating. That's incredible. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's like that. It's like, a, you know, literally like as soon as you walk, someone walks into the room, everyone's attention goes to them and they're sort of the center of attention wherever they go. Yeah. Um, sounds like Katie was like, one I of think people. she was. I really do. Yeah, and that you know, explains the haters. It definitely explains the haters. Yeah, for yeah. sure. And there were plenty yeah. of them. And it was like, you were either in her posse or you were mad about it. Right. <laughs> now, I have a question because you said that it's a rice plantation. Mm-hmm. Now, the one thing that Lynn told me that we would like to touch on that's a little bit like, is it like that the, that was important is about a machine that is invented later on but that has nothing to do with rice yes so do they end up diverse does she diversify that plantation and before we reveal to the audience what the big thing that we're about to talk about is, but it is important yeah i don't think that it was their particular plantation that got diversified she ended up marrying phineas miller Ah. so she became Catherine littlefield green miller and when she married the 10 years younger than her tutor. Hey, Cougar, I'm telling you, I love this woman. Uh, When she married the 10 years younger than her tutor, he became stepdad and not tutor anymore. Right. Right, right, right. And one of the reasons, it actually took them quite a while to marry because she did want to settle Nathaniel's estate and she wouldn't have had any claim to his pension at all. As it is, she only got a fraction of it, but she wouldn't have had any claim to his pension at all if she had married before receiving it. So she stayed single so that she could own property and receive this pension legally. And then they got married. And so when Phineas wasn't the tutor anymore, they needed a new tutor for the kids. And the one that they hired happened also to be an inventor. So I think that he was looking into this invention in this machinery prior to coming to live mm. at their estate. Gotcha. But Lynn, do you want to reveal to all of the people who had, I guess, middle school U S <laughs> history who we're talking about? Cause I, it's a I recognizable people, name. I hope people recognize the name. Um, but before I reveal it, I do want to say that, that one thing that Isaac and I were talking about earlier that, and we know a lot of historians hate what ifs, but the things we were thinking of, what if Nathaniel Green had not died? Yeah. And this would have impacted the creation of this very machine that thus impacted the entire world. And of course, we're talking about Eli Whitney and the cotton gin. That's right. And just so people understand what the cotton gin actually is, uh, we were, Lynn and I were trying to think of earlier today singular inventions that had great effects on a global scale. Mm -hmm. So you can pretty much toss out everything from before, like five or 600 years ago, because it wasn't possible to have a global impact before then. But in the last five or 600 years, there's a couple of things that had significant impact on like a worldwide basis. The printing press, 
the atomic bomb, the light bulb. The light bulb, yeah. I was going to say yeah, that. Like, yeah, the cotton gin, I don't know where it is on that list. It's in that conversation. Yeah, for sure. Like it is in that, that that's the level of invention. It doesn't seem like anything to us nowadays, but what in the context of, of like what it did to the world is after it was invented, the industrial revolution in England is a textile based economy. The text, the cotton that they were using to create those textiles came from America being used by the cotton or being cleaned by the cotton gin. Like that's, it was the thing that allowed that explosion of productivity to happen. And just to put it in perspective, in the 18th century, um, the United States and Egypt actually produced the same amount of domestic cotton and had comparable amounts of arable land. This, we're just talking about the colonies, not talking about the whole United States, so it's not the entire South, mm-hmm. um, but just the colonial South. Um, the amount of arable cotton plantations was pretty close. So like you're looking at two different countries that have basically are set up at the same starting point. And the only difference between the two of them as far as cotton production goes, is that the gin, the cotton gin was invented here. And it legitimately transformed the world in in a lot of pretty remarkable ways. And Lynn was right to point out, in some absolutely horrific ways for the enslaved population of the United States. Because it turned, what what was the phrase that you used, Lynn? It turned slavery from uh, necessary right. evil. So in, in the 18th century, slavery was looked at as sort of this necessary evil. So we have people who were apologizing for being slave owners. So you'll say, mm-hmm. yes, it's horrible, but so there's always that, but, but then as we go into the 19th century, it becomes no, no, it's a positive good. It's that, you know, these people, they, they're like children or women at the time. Um, they, they need us. They're, they're not, um, they cannot do this on their own. They, they need us to guide them. You know, they don't come from a civilized, you know, they're like children. And so all of a sudden we go from slave owners, um, you know, people who are owning enslaved people from saying, you know, well, it's a necessary evil. We, we know it's bad. We don't want it. But it's it's necessary. It's the economy too. Like the conversation that Nathaniel and Katie may have had about the rice plantation. Right. We want to have this rice plantation, and there's really no other way for us to do this. Right. They and know it's wrong. You know, with, with their Quaker leanings, of course, they know that it's wrong, that it's not the right thing to do, but they have to choose what their, you know, what their own livelihood, what they're accustomed to, versus someone else's humanity and you know, right. for all the good that they did, they still chose. Yeah, and the cotton gin made what a lot of the founding fathers thought slavery was becoming too expensive. Like it became economically unviable in the agrarian economy of the colonial, like just post-revolution Americas. Like it was a drain. It was too expensive. That's why Washington was trying to get rid of it, or one of the reasons why Washington was trying to get rid of it, of the institution and not owns uh, being an enslaver anymore. Um, but the cotton gin completely changed all that. It, it, it made it incredibly profitable to own people. And horrific. It was a really yeah. dangerous instrument. Um, it increased production of cotton exponentially. It increased the amount of uh, quota that an enslaved person could fill exponentially. And it was dangerous, dangerous, dangerous. Um, a lot of injury, a lot of death associated with this machine 
And for the longest, people have said that, you know, Eli Whitney invented it alone. But there's some suggestion that that's not the case. Yeah. And, and we, we took the time just to explain how important the cotton gin is. Right. Just, to be, just to say <laughs> that any involvement by anyone around the creation of this thing is of incredible historical importance. Right. Because it is... Um, one of the metaphors I like to use about history is that, you know, the, um, the Greek idea of like the, the loom of fate, like the threads mm-hmm. that sort of are like your lives or whatever. So imagine like history is like a big loom and then there's these threads going everywhere and sometimes they interact and intersect. But every once in a while, something happens where the entire, both ends of the looms are, loom are grabbed and twisted so that every thread is now touching from this single event. And the invention of the cotton gin because everything after that is affected by it is one of those things. So if, you know, Katie Green having Eli Whitney in her home as a tutor uh, and, you know, well, he's inventing on the side. Um, yeah. And we'll talk a little bit more about that, but it's, that's why um, it's important to at least examine what her potential like interactions with and involvement with it were. Right. And I've been really excited to talk to you about this because I've been trying to read everything I can find and no one agrees. Um, I know that at the time it was invented, women couldn't hold patents. Mm-hmm. So my question was, well, could she have done more? But because she couldn't hold patents, it was just in Eli Whitney's name and she fell off. Was it just financial? No one can seem to agree. And I feel like you have become Katie Green and you know her better than probably anyone else. And so I would love your perspective on, you know, what was her what was her role in the cotton gin? Yeah, I mean, I can't say for sure. Uh, She was a clever woman. So there is a book written in 1933, and I was just looking through it to make sure that I could find the publication date. And it is called Mothers and Daughters of Invention, Notes for a Revised History of Technology. Oh. And it references Katie heavily. Uh, it's a thick book, but it references it was Katie published in heavily. And That's crazy. Remember that the author is writing, the author is Autumn Stanley, so it's a female author, and she's writing in the 1930s. So even she is constrained by gender roles and norms. And so her perspective on Katie and how she justifies some of this, I think, reflects 1930s mm-hmm. sort of worldwide gender norms, Western world gender norms as well. And I think it's pretty much agreed upon that Katie helps to finance this invention because she's trying anything and everything to become solvent, right? She's still owing money. Mm-hmm. But there's some suggestion, and nobody has an original source, not even Autumn Stanley, to say that Eli Whitney was, you know, pondering over that the machine had wooden teeth that were trying to separate the cotton from the seed, the spiky seed. Um, Cotton bowl has a, you know, seeds all in it, in the actual fiber of the cotton. And previous to the invention of the cotton gin, enslaved people would have to pick those seeds out by hand. So this sped up the process, like we said, exponentially. And so there's some idea that they were just in passing conversation and he was pondering over this and agonizing over, I can't get this thing to work, it keeps jamming up or the wooden teeth keep breaking. And apparently she just flippantly remarks something about, well, you should use wire teeth instead of wooden ones. Hmm. 
And sure enough, he puts wire teeth in the damn thing and it works. <laughs> oh my gosh. And so was she involved in the scientific process? It's entirely possible. Right. When she was in Rhode Island waiting on Nathaniel and word from the general about where he was in troop movements, she never cared about politics. She never cared about war until her husband was in mortal danger. And then all of a sudden, she's talking about being in his library with the atlases, uh, trying to determine troop movements and trying to figure out how the science of war happens. Mm -hmm. So she's clever. If she cares, it sounds like she would have been interested in applying herself to learning and suggesting. Right. So I guess it comes down to how much did she care about what Eli was working on? Mm -hmm. And how much was it just, oh, I'm sorry, you're perplexed by this. Why don't you try this? Right. You know, get out of my hair. I'm writing a letter. My, my hairbrush with the wire <laughs> bristles works. Um, I'm, I was going to say, you know, like, <laughs> I'm brushing my hair with this wire bristled brush and you're bothering me. Try this. <laughs> Get out of my face, you know? So I don't know. I don't know how. It's a good question. She was definitely the money behind it. But whether it was a passing remark, whether she was interested in being his partner and, you know, doing some mechanical invention. I certainly think that she would have the personality for that, but right. I couldn't say if she cared that much about it. The I don't intelligence know. for it. Absolutely. Yeah. So if she was the financing, yeah, that's, uh, if she was the financing behind it, would, I'm trying to think of it in terms of like today, which obviously I can't apply. I'm trying to, so if she was like, if I funded the invention of something like then I'm like a part owner of that. Right. Thing. And that's so you like, think that if you had an works. idea about it, you want to see it succeed. So like, Hey, right. try this. Right. Yeah. As, like being a benefactor or an investor in something. Yeah. Um, did she make any money off of it or did, no, did... this is so, this is so perfectly in line with everything that happened in the greens lives. I kid you not. The man put his prototype in a barn and they went to Rhode Island to settle or up to the Northeast to, I don't know, get visiting or settle more estate matters or do something legal or I don't know what before he filed a patent. Kid you not, somebody broke into the barn, stole the prototype, and others made prototypes too, and they never filed a patent on it before, like a billion other people had filed a patent on it. So they didn't even make the money off of the invention of a world-changing machine. Oh my gosh. Are you kidding me? Wow. <laughs> That's crazy. I'm surprised he even got credit for it. It will exactly. That explains a little bit more why like, like the, the more well-rounded part of the story isn't told, because it, even just giving him credit for it is a step. Yeah, <laughs> and towards like some level of historical accuracy. That's but crazy. his name is still. I, I don't. I don't know about school children today, but that's the one thing I remember. It was Eli Whitney Cotton Gin. I mean, yeah, that, well, those I were mean, the two concepts that I remember. So there was a lamp that was produced in France. It's called an Argand Argand style lighting device, and it was produced starting in the late 18th century. Thomas Jefferson was a huge fan of it. Mm -hmm. bought them, brought them home from France and popularized them in America. And the Frenchman who invented it, Ami Argand, his name is still associated with the device, but he never patented it either. By the time he got around to patenting it, there were like 500 other patents in the world, not even mm -hmm. an exaggeration. And so all these other people were making these exact same style lighting device that each lamp threw off eight to 10 candle power. Oh, wow. And so his name is still associated with the lighting device, but he never, you know, made the 
millions or thousands oh. off of it Jeez. that he probably should have. So um, I don't know. I, I assume that there was some recognition that this invention was stolen from where it was stolen from. And while the legal process of stopping patents that are filed probably couldn't happen, uh, it seems to me that everybody knew where it came from and that must be why it's stuck. But right. it, it's there is precedent for it. Huh. That's wild. Yeah. And incredibly unfortunate. Yeah. This is, you know, copyright your work, people. Right. Copyright your work. <laughs> Issue your patents. Yeah. <laughs> file yeah. your patents. Yeah, exactly. Go file your patents. <laughs> <laughs> this is a very weird tangent, but um a- Amazon actually filed I think it's Amazon. Amazon filed a, or maybe it might have been Google, one of the big you know, one of those people, they filed a, um, a patent on a three point lighting setup, which is just three lights. Like the, like what everyone, every photographer has been doing for a hundred years. Right. Yeah. They own the patent. Dog. Oh, they actually, completely un- yeah, they actually, oh have, yeah. <laughs> they, I mean, I think it's completely unenforceable, <laughs> right. but like, yeah, it, 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 but the way the funny thing is the way it's described is sort of like, Oh, in, in all these ways that don't acknowledge the fact that this is just a standard thing that's <laughs> right. been done that's just for forever. <laughs> Yeah, very funny. Patents are crazy, but that's that's so unfortunate. So, did she ever, um, like get out, uh, like from under, get out from underwater, or was she did she like live the rest of her life sort of struggling like a lot of those other planters? Yeah, mostly that. I mean, she didn't die in abject poverty, um, but she certainly didn't enjoy the kind of she enjoyed the social status, but not the wealth. People really always for the rest of her life acknowledged her as, you know, the, the widow of General Green, even when she was married again, venerable mm-hmm. lady, a member of society. Um, I'm, I'm not sure that anybody would have really let her starve or go destitute, but the plantations were never super successful. It was just enough. Uh, and she Phineas never was really, really a businessman. Yeah. It was never the extravagant <laughs> existence of her youth ever again. Mm. Huh, that's unfortunate. Yeah. It, it's, to me, it's kind of like the same thing that happens to Nathaniel, somebody who is so vivacious and so influential in her day, and she just meets this sort of fairly mundane end, you know, just sort of, it's with a whimper, <laughs> you know, just fizzles. Um, and it's waiting in primary sources that I haven't read yet because this is a passion project for me. So, um, it's like, I'll get to the Nathaniel Green homestead or the little Rhode Island historical societies that are probably housing his papers somewhere when I can. Um, but I can't wait to find out more because I know it's just sitting in a box somewhere. I mean, you know, all these stories of history, they're, they're waiting in a box somewhere and we just have to go and find them and, you know, maybe, draw a little attention off of those that we've focused on for so long and, and start turning the light onto someone else. So. And if I could just do a little pitch here, I mean, this is why history needs funding. This is right. why grants and, you know, why historians need funding. It's for things like this, to go to these sites, to find these primary sources and to create these narratives to educate the public about all these other sides of history. Yeah. And if, if you're, no matter where you're listening to, I bet you within an, probably within a two or three hours drive of where you are, doesn't matter where you are in the country, there's probably a historical society somewhere sort of putzing along with some big library of, you know, all the papers of someone who 
like Katie and Nathaniel, had a significant impact on history that no one goes to visit. Right. And they have like one part time employee. And right. And they're open on Tuesdays and Wednesdays from two to four. And the collections are crumbling into dust because they're not funded well enough to, you know, archive them properly. And we're, I mean, and it's, it might be hyperbolic, but eventually we're going to lose those stories. Absolutely. And I know that we don't want to, right? We're all, that's how we connect with our past. That's how we know who we ourselves are, is by telling stories to each other about ourselves and our ancestors and, um, how they interacted with each other. I think history is enjoying a brilliant moment where we get to do that much more completely than we did in the past. We can really look at the good and the bad and the ugly. And we should. We've never had a chance to really do that before. Right. And not shirk away from those things. Yeah. It's okay to say that, hey, this. Th- there's no excuse for owning people. There's no like, excuse. For being an enslaver. There's no excuse for that. But this is still a person who had an interesting life that deserves to be examined mm-hmm. and we can learn from. Well, right. Uh, and you know, how can we do better? Because right. slavery now is worse than it ever was before. And it's completely right. illegal worldwide. Mm-hmm. Um, we can do better. We should do better, but we can learn from the people who didn't do better. Yeah. Like, don't leave your prototypes. Don't leave your in prototypes in an barn. unlocked barn or even a locked one. Gosh, no. file your patents. <laughs> yeah, file that, that's your a patents, very people. good yeah. tagline. File your patents. <laughs> yeah. What did we learn from the Katie Green segment? File your patents. <laughs> file your patents. Lock your garages and file your patents. <laughs> I think that's a great place for us to stop. And I, I get a good message. Go visit those little yeah. places. You know? Yes. They need your money. Don't go to DC. I'm not saying don't go to DC. The museums are <laughs> wonderful. There. But you don't you don't have to go to DC to get exposed right. to, to some really awesome history, you know? And seek out the weird stories, right? Because George and Martha were huge in the Nathaniel Green's lives. In, in the Nathaniel and Katie Green's lives. If you don't mm-hmm. stop at George and Martha, if you use them as the doorway to more, because their lives were huge and rich and complex and full of people too. Yeah, absolutely. And do you, Karen, do you want to tell us um, where you work now? Because I think yeah. it very much fits into what we're talking about. Sure. I work for the Historic Charleston Foundation. I'm the manager of education and programming, and I am thrilled to help administrate two house museums, which are sites. Um, they're urban sites. Uh, we I can't really call them urban plantations because the definition of a plantation is like industrial production of a product. Right. But they're absolutely urban landscapes of oppression. They're absolutely sites of slavery um, that are being interpreted as such. And I'm rebuilding the education program there. It was great before. I'm just updating it and you know bringing it into something that. Um, I find a little more meaningful and we're going to do great things there and, and really embrace a digital program and all sorts of fun stuff. So shout out to Historic Charleston Foundation. I'm excited. Yeah, you're you're like a, you're a one person history machine because not only do you do that, but you have your social media, which you're going to share with us. Um, you started a book club. Yeah. You have all of these cool programs that you do. One is about, and I know everyone will love this, about um, historic 
alcohol. I know you've done Madeira. You've done rum. I mean, come on. Who who's not gonna yes. wanna? I try to pitch people in Madeira all right? the time. Oh my gosh! I, I got I got into it after I started researching George. Because <laughs> you have to try uh, it, right? Yeah, you got to try it. It's enjoying a revival drink. right now. People are getting back into Madeira and port and the fortified wines. But yeah, colonial. Well, I mean, we call it Colonial Cocktail Hour, but they really weren't into mixed drinks. But anyway, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, I'm into that. There's really interesting stuff. It was a huge part of life in the colonial era, Jeez. just like it is today. See, nothing changes. Exactly. <laughs> people drank. And what's so cool is you go to they, events as well. And so people can come and see mm-hmm. you do these things. They can meet Katie Green. Absolutely. They can meet I mean, Katie Green. Katie Green and, can come to their you know, school or to their, you know, oh, program. And that's my favorite. I love doing that, going and hanging out with kids as Katie Green. Oh, my gosh. We did a tea party <laughs> once at a historical reenactment, and a little girl asked for a ticket with her mom to go to Katie Green's tea party. And she sat with me after the event was over and just asked me question after question and spoke to me as Katie for probably another half hour, 45 minutes. She was just absolutely enthralled. It was delightful. Um, and that, that child loves history. Of, yeah, and that child, yep. I hope, will not forget that. I hope she goes away and loves history for the rest of her life. Yeah. Yeah, so. it's a wonderful thing. So I'm a big fan. I'm a big oh, fan thanks. of public history. And But do you want to let us know, you know, your social media, your website, anything like that? Where can, where yeah, can, where can our uh, listeners go find Absolutely. You? So probably the easiest would be at my Instagram. It's at living underscore her story because history is not just for the fellows. So living underscore her story. Um, And there's a link tree there. I do have a YouTube channel, but I don't have enough subscribers yet. So it's not, you know, YouTube slash living history. So don't look for me there. That's not going to help you out. Just um, subscribe. Go and subscribe and you can find it on my Instagram. (laughs) I do have a coffee um, where you can find my recordings for the book club. We're doing an interpretive book club right now. It's about interpreting our past. And so it's for anyone who wants to do living history. You don't have to be a professional interpreter. If you like going to reenactments, if you like talking about history with people, it's a great book to read to figure out how to do that in an engaging and exciting way. So that's... um, coffee.com. I, I don't know if your listeners know much about coffee, but it's ko-fi.com slash living her story. Um, and you can go and check out my videos there. It's a site that's kind of like Patreon, but I'm not interested in doing subscription levels. So everything I'm ever going to put on there is free. Um, Great. People can send me a donation if they want to, but there's never going to be content that's behind a paywall. Um, that's not what I'm here for. <laughs> and then, yeah, events, um, livingherstorian at gmail.com is my email. Um, and everybody can find all of that in my link tree on Instagram. So living underscore her story on Insta, and you can find all of that. Yeah, we'll provide links to oh, this awesome. when we share Thank it on you. our social media and stuff like that. So you'll be able to find Karen wherever you most desire. I'm everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Karen, thank you so much. I really enjoyed the conversation. Oh, thank, thank you so, so much. much. I appreciate y'all inviting me. And um, I hope I didn't talk too much. I just get so enthusiastic about Katie and her interesting life. So It's a podcast we're supposed to oh, talk. Oh, that's right. <laughs> that's, what, that's what we're here for. Yes. And thank you so much for being with us and for, for all you do for public history and education. Thank you. I appreciate y'all. Thank you for listening to the full episode of Too Complicated for History. We hope you enjoyed the episode, and if you did, please leave us a review on Odyssey, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to follow us on our social platforms at 2C4H underscore podcast, or check out our link in the description. 
This will keep you in the loop for show updates, new episodes, and exclusive content. See you in two weeks for our next episode about Philadelphia socialite Elizabeth Willing Powell. Too Complicated for History is a podcast from Primary Source Media. Produced by Patrick Long and Lynn Price Robbins. Edited and mixed by Curtis Fritch. Opening theme music by Sheena Biratella.